your trusted source for news and analysis about Chicago White Sox prospects and player development, covering the Major League Baseball draft and international market, plus the action in Kannapolis, Winston-Salem, Birmingham, and Charlotte. This is the Future Sox Podcast with your hosts, Mike Rankin and James Fox. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I'll be your host. James Fox, as always, is alongside us. He is the senior editor at Future Sox, now part of SoxMachine.com. And I mentioned SoxMachine.com because, well, we're partners, but also our other guest today outside of James Fox is Josh Nelson. He's the podcast host of the Sox Machine Podcast. You can also catch him every other Friday on the Lawrence Holmes Show on 670 The Score at 1 o'clock. He and Jim Margulis, the lead editor at Sox Machine, pop on there weekly for their hits talking White Sox. And that's what we're going to do today. And if you're interested in more in-depth content here at Future Sox, as well as SoxMachine.com, go to Patreon.com forward slash Sox Machine and become a patron. really does help us out. And we provide you with exclusive content interviews, ad-free listens on the podcasts as well. So now that that's all out of the way, part of the Blue Wire Network too, by the way, here at Future Sox, that's also a nice little treat where you can get all of your podcasts wherever you want. So and we're part of that now. So that's great. Here's where we want to start today. Welcome, Josh. It's always great to talk to you. I love that we're teammates now because it gives me an excuse to talk big league White Sox, no matter how fun, no matter how <laughs> terrible, miserable they make me feel. This is a stretch now where it's reality check time. The calendar's turning to June. They DFA Dallas Keuchel. Aloy Jimenez made a rehab stint in Charlotte and then was taken out immediately after his first at-bat. Tim Anderson looks to have a pretty significant groin injury. The list goes on and on. So let's start with the decision to DFA Keuchel. This was a long time coming, I think, Josh. But man, the fact that they had to do it in the first place just leaves me with a really just miserable feeling, like a bad feeling in the pit of my gut. But it had to be done, in my opinion. I agree. And of course, thank you guys so much for having me back on the Future Sox podcast. It's fun to hop over to the other side. You know, with Keuchel, things were just progressively getting worse. And when you have a 7.88 season ERA in combination with an offense that is struggling to score anywhere near four runs a game, you can't, you can't afford to have a starting pitcher go on the mound and you worry that, Oh, he's going to give up six runs the first two innings, because if that happens with the way that the offense is performing, the game's over after two innings, just the way that we are seeing this White Sox team hit. It is such a struggle for them. And it feels like that Rick Hahn and the White Sox front office would probably want to see Vince Velasquez or Davis Martin possibly make those starts instead of Dallas Keuchel. So even though it's $18 million that the White Sox will continue to pay Dallas Keuchel for the rest of the season, I wouldn't be surprised if another team did pick up Dallas Keuchel and sign him to a league minimum contract and he pitches elsewhere in 2022 that may happen before the all-star break, but I don't think he's going to be joining a, like a contender, for example, uh, to help out someone to go into the postseason. Let's not have that high of expectations, which is disappointing is that if you go back to that off season, when the white Sox shocked everyone, they signed Yasmani Grandal 
and the flirtation with Zach Wheeler and how they were really close to signing Zach Wheeler. And Wheeler has been one of the best starting pitchers in the National League. The White Sox lose out in the Zach Wheeler sweepstakes. He goes to Philadelphia. And then the fallback plan is Madison Bumgarner, Hinjin Ryu, and Dallas Keuchel because the other grade A starting pitchers in that offseason had already signed. I was in San Diego for the winter meetings. I was in the hotel lobby when these announcements were happening and got to view firsthand just the craziness of everyone having to stop what they're doing and go and cover the the breaking news. So it's just it's unfortunate that plan A for Rick Hondon working that offseason and plan B was Dallas Keuchel and out of 49 starts they got a total of two wins above replacement in total value spanning over three seasons for Dallas Keuchel. So it's a it's a signing that ends up not netting a lot of positive value, even though Keuchel had a strong 2020 season. Uh, Mike and James, you know, we didn't see much in 2021, especially in the second half. And then he gets he gets John Dankst pretty much in 2022. Well, what's interesting is that he's at nine years of service for his career. He's so close to getting a 10th year of service that I think Dallas Keuchel is going to try to do whatever it takes to catch on a a major league team to get that extra year of service. It's just not going to be with the White Sox. Yeah, there's so many good points there, Josh. And, and James, let me throw it to you because he did mention the three years with the White Sox, and I see a, a 91 ERA plus and a 4.82 FIP. And Josh mentioned his 2020 across just over 60 innings. He had a sub-2 ERA. And, I mean, that was the Dallas Keuchel that you were hoping to get. And a three-year contract, $55 million, I mean, you're going to front-load that and pay him for his first – year and a half and that's exactly what happened because in the second half of 21 he fell off the table hitters were hitting over 350 off of him and this year he didn't have it prayer uh at the start of it and we saw these trends beginning at the end of 2021 and and that leaves me to ask you this question is how confident do you believe the front office felt in their depth within the system that suggested that they didn't need to acquire a high leverage starter or a high end starter like Robbie Ray this off season to give themselves just that extra boost, obviously to try and, and win a world series within the rotation. So, you know, I'm not actually sure how confident they felt because I mean, they were trying to get Sean Mania like right up until the season started. They just didn't have the prospects to do it. So, you know, for whatever reason, and like we've belabored the point about Carlos Rodon, like he's gone, whatever. They didn't replace him. Like they, I think they thought, you know, Michael Kopech is going to be really good. They've been right on that, but I think they clearly knew that they needed another starter. I mean, Tony Larusa, even after Lynn got hurt, basically said like, I don't know who the number four is, but Dallas is the five. Like everything they've said about this, like they they kind of seemed like they weren't counting on Dallas Keuchel, but they also didn't get anybody else. And then, you know, they did the Quato thing and that's fine. And like, they didn't know Davis Martin was going to be ready to come up and start. Like nobody did like that was good. So, you know, they did, they left themselves wide open to get like kind of hurt by this. And, and I think they're going to be okay. Cause I think they only need the Keuchel spot one time. Somebody's going to have to start Friday or Saturday in Tampa. And then after that, Lynn's back and they should be fine. And then, you know, you get to the trade deadline and see. But, I mean, it was just weird. The whole the whole way they handled it was weird because I don't think that they had any confidence in him. But they also didn't acquire anybody, even though they did try. So I guess we, you know, I think that's the evidence that they weren't totally confident is that they really did try to get Shamanaya. They just, San Diego beat them to it. 
Josh, I love the point that you made, like thinking back at some of the old Keiko starts where he would give up six runs across two innings. And so often this season, I feel like Tony Larusa, and even some points last year, would play for tomorrow and he would just punt games sometimes. And I understand it. But the the feeling I get from that clubhouse, or at least the philosophy from the manager, is we have so much talent that when we go and play, things will even out for us. You know, we'll have bad games, but we'll also have really good games. And because we're so talented, we are going to win the games that, that you're expected to win. And I just feel like that hasn't been the case. And it's also instilled a complacent attitude in the clubhouse because, you know, talent is great. But when you're not putting it together on the field, you're playing sloppy defense, you're at the bottom of the league and on base percentage, all these other factors. I just, you know, it's hard to quantify how much of an impact. A manager has on the ball club. So I, I'm just thinking out loud here. But mm. if you guys want to expand on that point, I just because there, there's something missing with this White Sox team. I, I just can't put my finger on it. And what we saw over the weekend. So going into future Cubs talk, uh, <laughs> the Chicago Cubs have called up a couple of their minor league prospects to see on how they could handle life in the major leagues. Uh, I think it's what Christopher Morell. That was in center field. Yeah. And then they have Nelson Velasquez is up today. And I saw somebody tweeted like their entire 40 man, other than I think that Alex Canario or whatever is in high A, everybody else on their 40 man has, has been on the Cubs this year at one point or another. But morale is promising and the Cubs are not going anywhere this year. I mean, they may lie to the public, right? Jed Hoyer may say, oh, no, we're trying to be competitive this season. This is not a rebuild, and nobody's buying that. But at least they're giving some of the intriguing prospects some time in the major leagues to to get their you know, feet wet and see what you have on hand because that will influence future decisions for you as a ball club. And we saw Morrell have you know a few hits against the White Sox over the weekend. He made a fantastic catch in center field. Uh, to rob extra base hits uh, against the White Sox on Sunday. He's an interesting player. And with the White Sox as a team, you mentioned the clubhouse, Mike. They're going to be rolling into Toronto on May 31st, still at 500. And they're rolling into Toronto at least five games back at the Minnesota Twins in the American League Central. Like, it's not early anymore. You are now in June. And the things that Frank Menachino was telling James Fegan of The Athletic when Fegan wrote that column about the White Sox hitting struggles and getting Menachino's thoughts, the, it was very revealing to me when Menachino said for the first time in his hitting coach career that he has so many veterans who are pressing and who are struggling. And the veterans are pressing so much because they're worried that they are nowhere near their career numbers. For example, Jose Abreu, if you look at his slash line, he's nowhere near his career average. But if you look at his weighted runs created plus, it's over 100. So people will say, Jose Abreu is fine. He's above league average. But what's been the common drumbeat all 2022 is that offense is down. If you look at Abreu's slash line, I think everyone would agree that's not good. But it's good in 2022 because the league as a whole is not hitting very well. Uh, so that's why Jose Abreu is still above league average. So while you have this offense struggling right now for the White Sox, I think they should take note of what the Cubs have just done and to ignite some type of spark, call up some players from Charlotte like a Yobert Sanchez and see what you got. 
because we know after two months what you have in Josh Harrison. We know we know Danny Mendick. Bless that guy's heart. 20th round pick. The fact that he's played so many major league games in his career is highly impressive, but he is someone that you don't want to see start every day at shortstop for two plus weeks while Tim Anderson is out. And White Sox fans are very much over Lurie Garcia. So what I would like to see as far as that spark in the clubhouse, Mike, that you were referencing to, the Cubs are trying to get that spark, even though they're rebuilding, by calling up some of their more interesting prospects of the 40-man roster. I think the White Sox should do the same. Even though they're not rebuilding, they need something to energize this team, especially as they wait for what could be really devastating news regarding Tim Anderson's health status. Josh, you know, I wanted your opinion on this too. And it's it's something that I, I tweeted yesterday and, you know, kind of tongue in cheek, but I, I think it's worth exploring at this point. I mean, Jake Berger is up on this team. And like you said, in this offensive environment, Jake Berger has a 105 WRC plus right now that, you know, he he's not lighting the world on fire, but this team is 25th in offense. So, you know, Yon Mankata is going to be the priority at third. He's not moving to second, like I get in my mentions every day on Twitter. That's like not happening. So how do you keep Jake Berger on this team? Like, I don't think Jake Berger is going to be a plus defender at second base. Like, I, you know, I, I completely understand why somebody would say, you're, you know, you're crazy. Why would you play Jake Berger at second base? If Tim, Ander- Tim Anderson's going on the DL, if it's an extended absence, I, I would play Yolbert at shortstop and I'd play Jake Berger at second because their defense is going to be bad regardless and they were supposed to hit to mask some of these mistakes and mm-hmm. they haven't hit. And it, you know, it's one thing I've agreed with Steve stone about that. He said on six seventy a bunch of times and everywhere else, like, you know, if the white Sox defense is bad, but they win eight to three, like you guys aren't talking about it on the Sox machine podcast, but true. if their, if their defense is bad and they lose three to two because of it, it's a huge problem. This team was mm-hmm. supposed to hit and they're not hitting. And for all of the, you know, like, oh, they don't look like they're trying and it's a dead team and this and that. They're not hitting. This is what it looks like when you have the 25th ranked offense in the sport. It's brutal. So we'll get into whether they're going to bring up Yolbert or not. How crazy is that playing Jake Berger at second and Yolbert at short? Well, Berger at second base, sober self, because if you give me a few beers, I'd be like, yeah, let's do it, James. Put Jake Berger at second base. Let's see what he's got. But sober self, looking at it, Trying to be level-headed. I I don't think it's a great idea because as soon as you have a fly ball in shallow right field, like he's not going to be able to chase that down. And who the White Sox have been playing in right field definitely compounds problems for the White Sox for the White Sox starting pitchers. But Jake Berger needs to be in the lineup. And how poorly Gavin Sheets has been hitting for the White Sox this season. I feel like if Berger's not going to play third, or if he's not going to play first base. He should be DHing. You you need Burgers bat in the lineup right now. You need to go with the hot hand. In this upcoming series against the Blue Jays, the White Sox are going to have to face Kevin Gaussman, who is probably right now the front runner to win the American League Cy Young, and Alec Manoa, who has been red hot for the Blue Jays ever since they drafted him out of West Virginia. Those are going to be tough days for the White Sox offense. Even though they're right-handed starting pitchers, James, I feel like you need to have Jake Berger face Gaussman and Manoa because he's going to give you the better at bats than Gavin Sheets. And that's how much Gavin Sheets has really fallen off to start 2022. 
Manichino has mentioned it. Sheets has too many swing paths right now and doesn't know which swing path to use from pitch to pitch. If he is overthinking his at-bats right now, I think he just needs to go back to Charlotte to regain some confidence and get back into a rhythm at the plate because that's not going to happen in Chicago, uh, especially if he's doing this, if he's overthinking pitch by pitch, uh, because some swing paths that he has are just not very good swings at all, and that's why we're getting the results that the White Sox are getting. But you know, with Yolbert Sanchez, I'd rather see him start at second base, and then I guess just go with you know Danny Mendick, Lurie Garcia as shortstop. It's a very confounding situation right now, James, because the more you talk about it and the more we think about it, it does revert back to, well, why not Jake Berger at second base? Well, he's not very good defensively. And I know Josh Harrison could play defensively. Okay, but Josh Harrison can't hit. Touche. He cannot hit. Uh, so that is the question right now. What does the starting pitching staff for the White Sox, which has been very good this year, what do they need more? Do they need a larger uh, margin of error? So they need more run support or do they need better defense behind them? And unfortunately you can't say, well, they could get both. No, for the White Sox right now with the current roster construction, you get one or the other. So I guess that's a good question for you guys. And where do you line up? Do you think the White Sox should feel the best defensive team possible or should they feel the best offensive team possible? Because based on how you answer that question, will determine whether or not if you would have Jake Berger at second base. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I would do the latter personally. I mean, I get it. Like, I don't think you could play him every day at second for sure. I just like, if they don't hit they're abs, they're cooked, I think. So, you know, they have to hit like if they, I mean, if they play really good defense, like they might still lose three to two. So I don't know. It's tough. I mean, I, like, I think the three of us agree, like, I would have Yolbert Sanchez at second base if Tim Anderson wasn't hurt because, mm-hmm. because, and it, and it's more just because like he's 25 and he's pretty good at Charlotte and maybe he's a career utility guy, but like kind of what you were talking about with the Cubs, like, let's find out. Like I, Josh Harrison doesn't really deserve any more rope here. I don't, it, it just like doesn't make any sense and they clearly don't want to cut bait yet but you know th- this makes it more obvious like a Tim Anderson injury but like I think Yolbert should have been up anyway because maybe that guy's your second baseman next year I don't know I think there's a good possibility mm-hmm. that he's not but but he might be and even like with I've talked about the 40 man implications like you got to add that guy to the 40 this off season and you have Lenyon Sosa in double a doing what he's doing. He needs to be added to the 40. It's twofold. He could go to Charlotte then, you know, and you got an infield log jam with Jose Rodriguez and Brian Ramos and all these guys that are, you know, some of them are going to be involved in trade talks this summer. Like they're all, you're, you're at the point where these guys all need to be added to your 40 man roster. So something has to give eventually. This just seems like, an easy, like an easy call, like just bring him up and let's look. Cause Tim Anderson's hurt. So I don't, I don't know. I don't know what they're going to do. Um, but it, it makes sense to me to try. And I don't think any of us think that Gilbert Sanchez is going to come up and save the team, but it's something. I was going to ask you, Mike, where do you line as far as that philosophical debate? Should the white Sox feel the best offensive team or the best defensive team? I think they should not play Jake Berger at second base ever. So, uh, I don't think he can do it. I don't think he has the range. 
I appreciate his bat, but you need somebody sure-handed at second. Nothing against Jake Berger, but he is just getting by at third base, and that's essentially his main position. So I want somebody with range, and I feel like you can get away with Yolbert and either Mendick or Leary up the middle, whether they're playing short or second, because Yolbert can play short. So I don't think you overthink this. However, the conundrum is obviously you want Jake Berger's bat in the lineup. And that's what's been the holdup all season long is Tony La Russa is willing to play handedness or getting creative with the lineup with guys who career wise make contact and putting them at the top, like Josh Harrison, who's batting 190 for whatever reason, but in second, like that doesn't make any sense. Or having last year, Nick Williams and Nicky Delmonico in the middle of the lineup because they're veterans. I air quote veterans because they've had professional experience over Andrew Vaughn just to break up the lineup a little bit. Like, this is the the kind of stuff that holds you back. I, I feel like you feel the best team that you can, obviously, but don't look at handedness when you're creating the lineup. You want to have your best nine out there. And Jake Berger at second base puts you at a disadvantage. However, his bat puts you at an advantage. So if that means sitting Esmany Grandal or sitting Gavin Sheets, then do it. I don't care if you're batting nine righties against a righty. It, it, this is the thing. Like The White Sox have had... So many exceptions defensively already playing guys all over the field that I just can't take it anymore. I didn't like the fact that they were settling. I I felt like they were settling on Josh Harrison. Mm -hmm. It's not good enough. I felt like they were very comfortable with giving Leary Garcia that money because he's a 26th man on their roster, but not necessarily expecting to use him so much. This is Rickon speaking right now, in my opinion. Um, Tony LaRusso loves Leary Garcia because of his versatility and the success that he's had with him in 2021. But in all reality, he is just above average as a player, above replacement level as a player. And this is a guy getting full time. So again, like I'm rambling here. It's just so frustrating watching the way this roster is being managed and how it, quite frankly, has been constructed at the beginning of the offseason. It's just not enough. And then you're left with these questions of Jake Berger. Should he be playing second base, in my opinion? Absolutely not. <laughs> so you absolutely said, not. You said the big word. It's construction. And Josh, I'm going to come to you just because. Like, I totally agree with you on Gavin Sheets. He has a 600 OPS right now. They mm-hmm. depended on him to be yes. left-handed power. I mean, he had a 900 OPS against righties last year. I, you know, I don't think he's ever going to hit lefties. I don't think they ever expected him to. But I, I feel like if he wasn't left-handed, he he'd be in Charlotte already. They just think like, you know, and Tony, it is handedness a little bit. Um, but they just like think it's he's their best option still because they have no left-handed power because they didn't add any. And I know that AJ Pollock had a 140 WRC plus against righties last year, and that's the biggest thing. The biggest thing is hitting right-handed pitching. But man, like Gavin Sheets, you know, and maybe they depended on him a little bit too soon. But I'm with you. Like he should go to Charlotte, get the swing ironed out, and you just play Jake Berger instead. And I know you're right-hand dominant then, but. I mean, if you're not getting anything out of the guy anyway, like it doesn't make any sense to like keep doing what they're doing just because. Yeah, and that's a good point. I mean, Sheets and Grundahl, your primary left-handed bats are not hitting, period. Yeah, and Makata. Yeah, and yeah, Makata is slow out of the gate since recovering from his injury where he missed, you know, almost the entire first month of the season. The 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 roster move I would make for the White Sox if I was Rick Hahn today is obviously we're waiting on the news for Tim Anderson but I would DFA Kyle Crick. I I just don't think he's got it to be a major league reliever. And I would replace Kyle Crick's spot of the 40 man roster with Yobert Sanchez. That that's the roster move I would make. So 
Gilbert is on the 40 man roster. So you have that first hurdle cleared guys. And then when you want to call them up, you can call them up. I think that's uh that's totally fair. And I, I really like where your head's at there, Josh, because I agree with you. Uh, Kyle Crick is just too hit or miss, mostly miss stuff is great, but I mean, a reliever like that is replaceable and the White Sox have a ton of them. And it's time for Gilbert Sanchez to get to the big leagues. We saw his success across a year's time dominated in double a last year here he is this season as well dominating at the plate really when i say dominating at the plate relative to his skill set this is a guy that when he was signed defensive utility on the infield can play multiple positions he was lauded for his glove but man is he proving that he has bat to ball skills and that's what the white Sox need right now i think it's a fascinating discussion related to the 40 man because there's a lot of implications james just thinking moving forward we don't have to make crazy uh, you know, predictions or, but how would you try to improve this roster prior to the trade deadline? Obviously you're thinking of Lance Lynn, Luis Robert is coming back from his injury, hopefully soon. I mean, there's a lot here and we're keeping an eye on Aloy Jimenez as well. I mean, you already talked about Gavin Sheets, but how long can you get away with playing as many Grandal uh, in the lineup as long as they have and Josh Harrison as well? And Grandal has to play in my opinion, because like if he doesn't hit their not going anywhere anyway. So I'm of the mind where it's like you keep playing him, hoping he turns it around because if he doesn't turn it around, you're not going anywhere anyway. And he signed next year. So, you know, some of the other things like, I mean, Josh Harrison's easy to replace. Like we've just talked about that. Gavin sheets, you can play Jake Berger instead until you get to the trade deadline. And then, you know, I think your trade, like it, it depends on if you're in it, right? Like, are you, are you 10 back of the twins at that point? Like, is it even worth it? Like is, is the third wild card within striking distance. I mean, it's something that Josh and Jim are going to be talking about a lot, and we will too. I think it just depends. Like, I don't think the White Sox are sellers by any means because you're bringing a ton back. Like, you're a contender in this division next year and whatever. But, like, what you do now, I think if you can stay within striking distance, like, they're going to try to add because that's their nature and that's what they do. And to me, it's guys like... You know, Andrew Benatendi in in Kansas City, they've always loved him. Like, what is that going to take? He's a rental. I like Josh Bell, but my goodness, like how many first baseman DH do you need? So, you know, I think it's, (laughs) I I just think it's, I think it's left-handed bats at this point. And I don't think you should be afraid to, you know, if, if getting Josh Bell means that Gavin Sheets and Jake Berger can't play anymore, then okay, fine. Like that's like, I don't think they should not do something because it could upset something like if you know like if you if AJ Pollock plays less because you get Andrew Benintendi like I, I think that's fine they they have to get left-handed and honestly like it's probably a much deeper thing right where they need to change the core a little bit but that's not something that's going to happen in season that's a that's an off-season discussion really good stuff guys really good stuff we're going to take our first break when we come back we're going to touch on some draft talk as well as some minor league players that we are obviously following very closely, including Colson Montgomery and some news on Oscar Colas. The Colas stuff, not so good. So stick around. Josh Nelson joining us here on the Future Sox podcast. You can follow him on Twitter at Sox Machine underscore Josh. James Fox is at James Fox 917. I'm at Rankin 906. You can follow us on Twitter at Future Sox. If you subscribe to our Patreon, by the way, you're coming right back. No ad break for you. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk more White Sox baseball here on the Future Sox podcast. There's no I in team, but there is one in Indeed. And that's the hiring platform that you need to build yours. 
When you're hiring, you need Indeed. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring platform that can help you do it all. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because Indeed does the hard work for you. They show you the candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your description immediately after you post so you can hire faster. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash sports. Offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at Indeed.com slash sports. That's Indeed.com slash sports. And support the show by saying that you heard it on this podcast. Indeed.com slash sports. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Back here in the Future Sox podcast, talking White Sox baseball. A lot of it's been miserable, but that's what we do here because the White Sox with World Series aspirations, hey, what do you know, are fighting for their postseason lives in May as the calendar is turning to June. So now that that's out of the way, let's talk some minor league stuff. Really primarily focus on the the top prospects within the system as well as preview the draft. I know the guys here in this uh, in this podcast are working very hard, especially our writers and staff members are already putting together draft previews. We are prepping for the draft this season. The White Sox picked number 26, and James and Josh have a mock draft coming out on Wednesday, so go to SoxMachine.com, keep an eye out on that. Uh, we were talking a little bit before the podcast, before we get into the draft conversation, about Colson Montgomery. We see him get a little bit more of prevalent pop going on in his game, so that's encouraging. James, I know you have some notes that you'd like to share about Montgomery. Yeah, so I mean, I was just like impressed, and you know, Josh can touch on. It's something we talked about a lot, like leading up to last year's draft, right? Like Colson Montgomery was like a late riser in the process, in the in the process, I guess, and he was linked to the White Sox early, and then they took him. He was a Indiana prep that played three sports, but he was a little bit older than everybody. So Colson Montgomery is a twenty-year-old in low A right now, playing for Canapolis, and he's been, you know, he's been really good. He's got a four hundred four weighted on base average. Um, He's been starting to hit for more power. He's walked at like a 14% clip. So, I mean, he looks pretty good down there and he's hurt. Like he missed some time. He got hit on the hand. Um, the team is, you know, very close to the vest about injuries. So we don't know how bad it is. Um, but, you know, we've heard recently that it's, you know, he's still favoring it a little bit and he's taped up, but it hasn't really stopped him. So I just like think it's promising. I think he's definitely the top prospect in the organization right now. Um, and you know, I, I, I don't know if that means he's going to move to Winston. I mean, I think if he stayed the whole year at Canapolis, it would be fine, but Josh, what are you, uh, what are your thoughts on the early returns of Colson Montgomery? The White Sox, finally, they went back to the prep player. Well, in the first round for the first time since 2012, and it looks to be working out pretty well for him so far. Yeah, I mean, Colson Montgomery is having a very strong May uh, ever since coming back off the injured list with that hand injury, as you mentioned, James. In the month of May so far, Montgomery sitting 347 with a 448 on base percentage and slugging 571 for the month. That's an OPS over 1,000. And the thing that I'm noticing when I'm watching film of Montgomery in his action with the Canapolis Cannonballers is that I think he's starting to learn in just these 13 games in May, what pitches he can drive. Now, Montgomery's only had 27 games in low A. And for him to start picking up 
tendencies and understanding the types of pitches that are being thrown to him and the locations to look where the pitch tunnel or the pitch path is going to end up along with his swing path is very impressive. Now I know people are saying he's old, he's 20 years old, you know, in Indiana, they have a higher age, I believe than like, for example, Illinois, uh, where, when you could start kindergarten. Uh, so Montgomery just, that's how the cookie crumbles in Indiana. And that's why he was 19 years old as a high school senior getting drafted by the Chicago White Sox. You know, the concern with Montgomery is, is he going to hit for enough power? And we're, we're seeing flashes of that so far in the month of May, you know, moving forward, he's not going to face a ton of lefties in low A, but the lefties that he has faced so far, he is struggling. He is hitting 235 with a 333 on base percentage and slugging just 294 against lefties. Against righties, though, he's almost hitting 300. He's got a 410 on base percentage and he's slugging over 506 uh, against right handed pitching. Those are the numbers that you want to see, and the White Sox desperately need to see out of their left handed hitters is to have that type of on-base percentage, which is just so rare. I mean, you guys have been covering the White Sox prospects for years. It's it's very rare to see White Sox prospects have an on-base percentage that starts with a four. And, and that's one of the thing that, you know, one of the things that catches my eye is that he's demonstrating he's got a very good understanding of the strike zone. And on top of what I just mentioned is that on film it looks like he's understanding what pitches that he can drive. This combination offensively is what allows prospects to quickly rise through a farm system, right? Because Fernando Tatis Jr., when he joined the San Diego Padres farm system, just was like a brush fire through their farm system because he understood his strike zone. He understood what pitches he could drive. Luis Roberts' second year in the White Sox minor league system. He didn't hit any home runs the previous year. But the very next year, he understands what pitches he could drive, and he puts up just ridiculous numbers across all levels of the White Sox uh, farm system. I'm not saying that Montgomery is going to all of a sudden create this blaze of a path next year and reach Chicago, but they, these are the things that you want to see in the first 27 games of someone's professional career with the White Sox. Pitch recognition and understand what pitches that you could drive. And that feeds into your on-base percentage and it feeds into your slugging percentage. And that's where it shows. And ever since that hand injury, and I know, James, you mentioned it's still nagging Colson Montgomery a little bit, but you couldn't tell based on the performance. You can't tell based on the numbers and you can't tell based on the film of the hard contact that he's making. I've been very impressed with Colson Montgomery and I agree with you guys. He should be the number one prospect in the White Sox farm system over Oscar Colas. Josh, you have a really good point about uh, plate approach, and I think that's such a difference maker for prospects, especially young prospects. And in Colson's case, first full professional season at single A, still in Canapolis, just over 100 at-bats. You listed the the stats there. I mean, Montgomery's having success. So this is an interesting piece that was taken as a 19-year-old high school senior. So that is a draft philosophical note that I'm going to bring up again in a little bit because we are going to hit on some draft talk. I think that's just a fascinating thing to cover whenever we were mentioning the development of Colson Montgomery. And I wanted to throw this to you both as well. You mentioned Oscar Colas. He's having a, a rough May. He had an injured wrist that kept him out for about a week, a little over a week. 
Uh, he's got a 638 OPS in May. He's hitting about 180 in, uh, and this is something to bring up because he's older. And I just, I'm curious, James and Josh, what your opinion is of Colas in terms of his proximity to the big leagues. I know we're getting a little ahead of ourselves because we have to be realistic on, you know, his process signing as an international free agent and getting acclimated stateside. But realistically, I mean, this is a, this is an older prospect with professional experience in the past playing at a high level. Just curious when you think his timeline is or what his timeline is at this point. I kind of thought the White Sox goal was to get him to Birmingham at least to close the year, have some success there, and then he goes to the Arizona Fall League and like he's like one of your showcase guys, you know, like one of your showcase prospects. And then next year he's whatever, either goes back or he starts in Charlotte and then he's whatever. I mean, Oscar Colas is not going to be their starting right fielder next year like some people thought like to start the year. Um, but, you know, I did kind of like what I heard early this year from people that have seen him like it is it's it's big time right-handed or big time left-handed power which they don't have he was holding his own in center which he's never going to play which tells me that he could play in an outfield corner um his plate approach was was okay too but he's in high a I, I just think he's hurt right now and he came out again the other night and hasn't been back and you know we can't really get any clarification on that so I like I just think he's hurt right now but you know, the early signs were actually promising for him to the point where like I thought Colson Montgomery and him were the top two prospects in the system. And it wasn't really close, even with, you know, some of the stellar performances early on. So I think we're just going to have to wait and see if he's, you know, healthy and then he's going to have to come back and play. And if he does well at Winston, like, you know, I think closing the year in Birmingham is a goal for him and probably for the organization. And that's what we should watch at this point. So, Josh, let me frame it this way to you. Thinking about the way the White Sox approached this offseason, do you feel like the organization has a lot of confidence in the depth that they have in their international class, including Yuelki Cespedes and Oscar Colas in the outfield? Did that impact their decision-making a little bit? This is where you're going to differ between the way that the White Sox think and the people that cover the White Sox think. I disagree with the White Sox if they're going into 2023 not searching for a long-term solution at right field because they have Yoki Cespedes and Oscar Colas in the minor leagues. I think that's faulty thinking. The White Sox are thinking, yeah, we got Cespedes and Colas, so we should probably just do a short-term solution just in case if these guys do blow up in 2023 that we would prefer them in right field late 2023 or as soon as 2024 because they may have a higher ceiling than the free agent that we would be signing for right field or trading perhaps if the White Sox go into the trade market. So that's where I would disagree with the White Sox. I would say go get a proven right fielder to take care of that position so you don't have to sweat about it anymore rather than continuing with these short-term solutions and then fingers crossed that Yoki Cespedes or Oscar Colas uh, can reach their potential. Because you, you mentioned, you know, for Colas's stats so far in Winston-Salem, it, it's just a 764 OPS right now for Oscar Colas. It's not like he's setting the world on fire. And, and to circle back with Colson Montgomery and how well that he's been understanding the strike zone, the second round pick for the White Sox was Westcath. I thought he had an opportunity to go first round for the White Sox. 
And Kath has struck out 59 times in 153 at-bats. So that's 59 times he struck out in 40 games. So Kath is really struggling to understand the strike zone and pitch recognition. So that's the difference between the first-round pick prep player for the White Sox and the second-round pick for the White Sox. And I think that gauges just how far along Colson Montgomery has come, even when you compare to Oscar Colas. But, you know, the other thing I was thinking about, James, when – you know, just with Coloss is that it's been kind of a long downtime for Coloss. Like he hasn't had this much game action since 2019. So there, there's probably a period of time that he needs to break off some rust. And I know that he's 23 and I know that he believes in himself and he's amped up and he wants to join the Chicago White Sox ball club as soon as possible. But there is, there's got to be someone in his ear to just level set with Coloss that right now your focus should be the best player you could be for the Winston-Salem Dash. Then get over the hurdle and get yourself to Birmingham because you're right, James. That is the, that's a great goal for Coloss if he could play well enough or hit well enough to join the Birmingham Barons. Because right now, with the way that he's been, been performing, he may be stuck in Winston-Salem all season. Yeah, and that's where I think I just think the injury is a big deal because I think the like I think his OPS was well over like 850 early and then he got hurt. Um he started to hit for power. He did a lot of like I kind of liked the approach where he he had a lot of hits like to the opposite field. Um you know, so I think like some of that approach was I I was just like impressed with what I saw and what I heard from others that saw him, but it's just been derailed a little bit and you're right, like the age shouldn't matter. Like he he was stuck in limbo for years. Like he, he hasn't played. He just needs to play. So, you know, even if he finishes at Winston, it's not the worst case scenario. Um, but I agree with you. Like they, the White Sox just think like that. They're like, oh, like we, we're going to just like keep doing one year stop gaps in the outfield. You know, like it's if they sign a real player to play in the outfield and Oscar Colas is awesome, they'll find a place for Oscar Colas. They just, you know, it's the more bats than spots thing. So, yeah, I, it it's uh, he's one of their highly ranked prospects. We we just have to wait and see. I think it's just hope. Hopefully, he gets healthy enough to to play. Is Cespedes playing well? Um, so you know, I, I think Cespedes is like a big league level defender with a plus plus throwing arm, but he he really struggles too. I mean, the hit tool is is not great. Is the biggest thing. So there's power. Can he get to it in games? I don't know. I mean, he, he was impressive in spring training, but that's why we can't read too much into spring training stats because it's, it's such a small sample. Like I think, I think he's a big leaguer, but you know, I don't, I don't know that he's a regular because I don't know that he can hit enough to play in an outfield corner. Yeah. 42 strikeouts at three walks in 34 games for Cespedes with Birmingham. Like that's going to prevent him from reaching the major leagues. You you gotta you gotta cut that down. Like that's not even close to a five percent walk rate. Goal one for Cespedes. Learn how to get a six percent walk rate. Yeah. You know, I mean the power's there. I mean, he's got seven homers and seven doubles and 144 at bats, but 42 strikeouts at three walks, James. I know. Yikes. Well, it's funny because he's done like the typical White Sox like prospects that we talk about, that's like what it normally is. But this year, like we've actually seen, like you've talked about Colson Montgomery. I mean, Lenyon Sosa, you know, like I didn't have Lenyon Sosa putting up Luis Robert numbers at Birmingham. And that's, that's another part of the, the Yolbert decision 
It's like, what if what if Lenyon Sosa goes to Charlotte and does the same thing? Well, then he's in the big leagues too. So, like, let's find mm-hmm. out. Let's see. Let's see if it, I mean, you know, he's 22. He's held his own at every level. Maybe he just finally figured it out. I mean, Birmingham used to be where guys would go to die. And, you yep. know, he, he has done the opposite of that. I, I do have to say the White Sox are doing a much better job developing infielders as of late than outfielders. Like Luis Mises, interesting. He's having a strong May for the dash. But everyone else, as far as in the outfield, like Colossus and Suspidus, there's there's very large questions that they need to address. But we talked about Sanchez and Sosa and even little guys like Danny Mendick still finding a way to be on a major league roster. Like we have been critical of the White Sox player development in recent years, but I have to say this year with the infielders, they have been impressive. Like you can point, we just pointed out three minor league shortstop second basements that the White Sox have that are having terrific seasons, but the White Sox need outfield help and the outfielders that everybody continues to circle and wants the White Sox to strongly consider them to play right field in 2023. I just, Mike and James, I just don't think they're going to be ready. Like the way that they're playing right now in May just doesn't give me a lot of hope that Cespedes or Coloss are going to be ready to help the White Sox in 2023. It's fair, James. You brought up Lenin Sosa, and I'm glad you did because I remember watching him in Arizona in 2019 during spring training. And like that was when I first hopped on uh, with Future Sox. And I remember Lenin Sosa was considered one of their top prospects. And I, I made a mental note. I was like, man, this is considered one of the Sox top prospects. And he was younger at the time. I believe he was 20, maybe 19 years old back in 2019. I'd have to double check. But I remember watching how small he was and how undersized he was. And then I, you know, you fast forward to today and he is so much stronger. And it just seems like his approach is, is fine tuned. But he was kind of just hovering there as a guy trying to survive and handle the level. Now he is playing above expectations at the level in which he's playing. So that's an exciting development of Lenin Sosa. And I agree, Josh, I think the White Sox have had a lot of success developing specifically middle infielders and give a shout out to Jake Berger as well. I mean, that was a unique individual story. Mm -hmm. So, and you talk about West Cath and that's a third baseman, but profile, maybe a first baseman in the future. Like this is where I want to go with the conversation. Now, as we wrap up this podcast and we're going to hear from Josh Nelson again soon, because draft season is on its way. We're going to talk to a lot of experts, especially Josh, who has been working very hard over the last several years covering the draft, and especially this season, combined efforts with James Fox and our our group at Future Sox and Sox Machine. We're going to have you covered all across draft season. This is an interesting one. Sox pick at 26. Again, there's a mock draft coming out. James and Josh worked on it. It'll be on Wednesday. So tomorrow, if you're listening to this podcast right as it dropped every Tuesday, the Future Sox podcast will have a new episode for you in your inbox. This is something I'm looking forward to your coverage, guys, because not necessarily my forte uh, when it comes to the draft. However, I love following draft philosophy and the way that the White Sox have been doing things over the last, let's call it three years, is they're willing to take a high school player in the first round. They're willing to pay prep players high or over slot value in the early rounds, top five rounds. That's been happening this year um, over the last few seasons. And you know, with Mike Shirley at the helm, the leader um, in, in the amateur development, I wonder what that philosophy is going to be like moving forward as well. I mean, is it going to be 
a prep player coming in this year. I don't know what it's looking like at 26, just early impressions, uh, what the White Sox have available potentially at 26 this year. What I foresee shaking out, and that's where the mock draft is going to help on Wednesday as we enter into June, because the mock draft is going to display for James and I where we think players are currently stacking up, especially in the first round. The MLB draft combine, which is going to be very heavy on prep players and college players that their schools did not make it into the postseason, are going to be participating. Uh, going back to Colson Montgomery, Montgomery had a very impressive draft combine, and there were rumors and gossip that he may not be available to the White Sox when they were going to draft, that he could have been drafted earlier based on how well he performed during the combine. For the White Sox right now, what you're going to see from James and I, when we are drafting like one through 30, for example, is that there are going to be some intriguing prep players in the back half of the first round, but there's still going to be a lot of college bats. And for the college starting pitchers, they're all hurt. (laughs) All of the top ranked college starting pitchers that are going to be available for the White Sox at pick 26 uh, are guys that had Tommy John surgery this year, and they're not going to be available to pitch for the White Sox, and they're not going to be available for the White Sox in spring training next year as well as they continue to rehab for Tommy John. So when it comes to the 26th pick, it's, it's this conversation about, well, it's on the college side, it's probably a position player but you're going to have to take a position player that could quickly rise through the farm system because you don't want to wait until they're 25 or 26 to join the majors. You want someone that can maybe get hot, maybe not on the level of Andrew Vaughn, but will not take more than three years to, to reach the major leagues. But the prep players that are going to be available for the White Sox are not obviously the top tier, but they have very interesting draft profiles and they have very high ceilings. They may not have as high of a floor as someone like Drew Jones, which James and I both agree is the best prospect in this draft class. But there's enough intrigue to take a gamble to give someone two and a half to $2.7 million in the first round and then turn around in the second round to go way over slot to grab another top 50 prospect in this draft class. So I'm leaning right now, James, to give a little bit of a preview to the listeners of what to expect on Wednesday for my mock draft for the White Sox to repeat their philosophy from last year in which they went with two prep position players to continue to get the farm system to be younger. Yeah, and we talked about, you know, the lack of outfielders and it's a good segue. Like I wouldn't be surprised if they doubled up like last year, they took two left-handed hitting infielders. If they took two prep left-handed hitting outfielders with their first two picks and overpaid the second guy, wouldn't be surprised at all. Now, you know, they're going to tell you that they're going to go best player available. And last year, Colson Montgomery was the best player on their board, but I mean, it does come down to money and you hinted at that. I mean, they have, I think the third, you know, the few, the third smallest bonus pool, like in the draft class, which, you know, it's tough, but it doesn't really affect you that much in the top two rounds. So I agree with you. I think similarly to past years, you know, it's going to be two guys at the top. They did, you know, they found a way to pay Sean Burke in round three last year. And they, they overslotted Tanner McDougal, who we haven't really seen in round five. So you could have that. I mean, it could be four noteworthy ish players, you know, 
on the first and second day, which is the first 10 rounds, and then a lot of senior signs until day three. But I think that's the way that a lot of teams are going to start going just because of you know, the, some of the rules with the way the draft is this year. Yeah, and with the White Sox, Mike, having a little bit more than $6 million in their signing pool, I would not be surprised if the White Sox spent $6 million in signing bonus money on their first three picks. Like, I wouldn't be surprised they did that. Like, 2.7 to the first rounder, 2.3 for the second rounder, and then a million for the third rounder. And then, as James mentioned, rounds four through 10, they're just drafting all these college pitchers uh, that they could sign for like ten to $20,000 a pop and then follow other teams' leads and start offering six-figure bonuses, at, you know, starting in round 11 all the way through round 20. So while you may say, well, this guy was a fifth-round pick of the 2022 draft for the Chicago White Sox, James, I think we should pretty much guarantee that the guy who's drafted in the 12th round probably has more talent than whoever the White Sox draft in the fifth round in this upcoming draft class. I think a lot of attention needs to be focused on the White Sox in their first three rounds of this draft because I think that's where the vast majority of their draft spending is going to be. James, I'll let you follow up in a second, but that just reminds me of the 2020 and 2021 drafts with Wes Kath included, as well as, you know, Jared Kelly being spent way over slot in the second round, signing Bailey Horn in the fifth and Tanner McDougal in the fifth, right? And you have Wes Kath and, and Colson Montgomery, one, two, Garrett Crochet, Jared Kelly, one, two, and you're, you're spending, you know, a lot of your, your bonus pool there. So that makes total sense to me. Yeah. And you know, the one thing, and you know, me and Josh will talk a lot about this. It's, it's just, it's because if, if you, you know, on day three of the draft, if you draft a college player and pay him $200,000 in a signing bonus, only $50,000 of that goes towards your draft pool. Whereas like, if you did the same thing in round five, all 200,000 counts. So that that's just like some of the games these teams play and all of them are doing it now, but it, you know, it's, it's smart strategy. It's something we will talk about. And it's just, you know, something we'll follow as we cover this thing over the next six weeks. So as we wrap up this podcast, please tell me about Drew Jones. What about his skills <laughs> that makes him so good? This is high remarks, but maybe this will blow back in my face, James. I see a lot of Fernando Tatis Jr. in Drew Jones. And what I mean by that, we're talking about a five-tool player that even though he's 18 years old right now, I think could reach the major leagues a little bit before or right at his 21st birthday that I just, I think of the world of Drew Jones, the power is there. His barrel speed is phenomenal. And he's just like his dad, Mike, when you watch him in center field, it's just like watching his dad man center field with the Atlanta Braves. And what's interesting is that I've had people tell me that, if it wasn't for uh, Jeff Blouse's son playing at shortstop, former Brave, uh, that Drew Jones would be at shortstop. Like a team may want to think about putting Drew Jones at shortstop and see if he could play that type of position. But as far as prep players, he may be the best prep player that I have seen uh, since I've been following the MLB draft. And I think no matter where he goes in the first round, this isn't someone be like, well, you're going to see him in 2026. No, uh, I think there's a real chance that you could see him in 2024 or 2025 at the latest, because with his skill set and having that pedigree, and he's got a good head on his shoulders and he knows what's coming next. 
He is someone that could quickly rise through any farm system. I don't know if he's going to go number one overall, but James, he probably should. Yeah, he definitely should. And I don't think he falls further than two. I mean, there's no reason for him to take a discount at one, but the Diamondbacks will be you know, sitting there and they they would take him in a heartbeat at two. One of the interesting storylines for this draft is like Andrew Jones's son is probably the best player in the draft, but Jackson Holiday, Matt Holiday's son is probably a top five pick as well. What is it? Lou Collier's son, Cam, is a 17 year old that, you know, reclassified and played at Chipola JC. He's going to play on the Cape. He's probably going to be a top 10 pick too. And then you have Carl Crawford's son who, um, you know, Justin Crawford from the Las Vegas area, who that'll be our first draft profile this week at Future Sox. So keep an eye out for that. Yeah, Mike, we may see a top 10 with no pitchers. It could be all position players in the top 10. I know we're talking about this in late May on Memorial Day, but that's what it's looking like in mid-July, that you may not see any pitchers taken in the top 10. And that's what everyone in the industry is currently talking about and just how incredibly rare that is. And it does fuel back to the White Sox looking ahead, even though we're like six weeks away still from the draft, something that they have to think about. There may be a college arm that falls to the White Sox that they were not expecting. How does that influence their thinking? And if it's someone that recently had Tommy John surgery, but they were a top 10 pick potential before they got hurt, do they take that risk? understanding the recovery that Michael Kopech has recently gone and do they go that route? So there's a, there's a lot of intrigue in the back half of the first round for the White Sox. And I think the top 10 picks are going to influence that setting a lot of pitching possibilities towards the White Sox and teams picking after pick 20. It makes sense to me, uh, like how you describe it, especially considering how you said the college arms are hurt as well as you tie into the fact that, now, there's reluctancy when it comes to a top 10 pick or a prep pitcher, unless it's like a full on guarantee. And I, I don't even know if there's prep pitchers worth taking in, in the top 10 this year. So we'll, we'll be following the developments of the draft. Really looking forward to your coverage. I know Josh and James will be participating in several Twitter spaces. And when the draft goes on, y'all will be live covering the Major League Baseball draft. It's always a treat. It's always must uh, must tune in stuff as well once that's going on. Guys, really fun conversation. We're up against it. We're almost at an hour, and I hope the listeners are enjoying this. Before I let you go, Josh, is Andrew Jones a Hall of Famer? Andrew Jones should be in the Hall of Fame. I I say he should be a Hall of Famer. Yeah, he, he should be in for sure. I, I don't know why. Good. Yeah, there, I mean, there's a lot of guys who I think should be in, though, that aren't in. So we'll see. But yeah. yes, this is a guy, if you look at his numbers, I believe it's 97 to 2005 put that up against anyone. Yeah. And especially center fielders. Uh, this is one of the best to ever do it. So I just wanted to throw it out there. It's one of the biggest things that I've been following myself. Every hall of fame season is why isn't Andrew Jones getting love? So just wanted to say that Josh James, thanks so much for your insight, your expertise, all the work you do at future socks and socks machine. This was so much fun. Appreciate your time, especially you, Josh, you're the man. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me on. James, we'll talk to you soon. I know we have a treat next week for the podcast, so I'm really looking forward for the listeners to be able to tune in. But every single Tuesday, catch us on the Future Sox podcast wherever you get your podcast. Thanks to the Blue Wire Network. Sign up for our Patreon, Sox Machine, or excuse me, patreon.com forward slash Sox Machine to sign up. Really do appreciate the contributions. It helps us continue to do what we do and grow. 
hopefully uh, you're enjoying the content. Again, thanks so much for tuning in. For Josh Nelson of Sox Machine and James Fox of Future Sox, my name's Mike Rankin. We'll talk to you all next week.